Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey there. Good morning, Crosspoint, and welcome. So glad you're joining us this morning for worship, and uh, for those of you who are new, we are also happy that you are with us, and we'd love to get to know you and learn a little bit more about you and be able to come alongside of you in your spiritual journey with, uh, with Christ. Um, today, we're continuing our teaching series in the book of Romans, and I hope you have a Bible handy, and I hope that you can turn with me to Romans chapter 3, as well if, if you want a copy of the uh, sermon notes, you can download those at thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes, and uh, they will be very helpful for you in following along. Hey, didn't Jada do a great job this morning in reading the scripture? I mean, that was a long passage, and it was a difficult passage, but she did a fantastic job. So thanks, Jada, for reading for us this morning. Uh, before we dive into today's text, uh, I want to help us get up to speed on where we're at in the book of Romans. Because remember, it's a long letter, and what we're learning today is part of all that's come before it. Um, again, so, so like I said, the book of Romans was a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to a church in Rome, a tiny little church that was living in the city of Rome, about 100 people in this church, meeting together in four or five different house groups. And one of the reasons why Paul was writing to the church in Rome uh, was because he was planning on visiting them. And he was hoping that when he arrived, he would be able to bless them and they would be able to bless him back. But he was also writing to help them navigate some troubled waters. You see, there was tension in the city of Rome, in the church in Rome, between two basic people groups. One was the Jewish Christians and the other was the Gentile or the non-Jewish Christians. And this tension really had a lot to do with the historic uh, Jewish faith that, was, that Christianity was birthed in. So a lot of the Jewish Christians uh, assumed that the Gentiles needed to continue living under the law of Moses. Some of the Jewish Christians actually uh, maybe had a, a, thought they were a step above the Gentile Christians. Uh, they were kind of experiencing this sense of Jewish nationalism that set them apart from the Gentiles. And, and so, of course, there was resentment and, and there was tensions. And Paul was, was writing to help them figure all of this out. And so that's really important when you read Romans. It's really important to understand that there is this undercurrent of an issue that is, uh, that is kind of navigating Paul's writing as he explores this uh, uh, letter with them. And, and a lot of times we can read Romans and we can think it's like a doctrinal treatise and, or, or it's a theological statement, and, and certainly that is all in there. But you need to understand that this is also a very pastoral letter, and Paul is writing to a church that he cares about, and he's helping them kind of figure this stuff out. So in, in the first few chapters, uh, Paul is essentially what he's been doing. He's, he's, he's been leveling the playing field between the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles Christians. He's trying to show them that they're both equally culpable and they're both equally accountable. And, and the fact is that God shows no partiality between any people, that every people group, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, needs the gospel. And so Paul began, of course, in chapter 1, he was addressing the Gentile Christians. But then in chapter 2, he turned his sights on the Jewish Christians. And, and he was challenging that, that they were, they were depending on their status as God's chosen people. So what Paul did is he just kind of starts dismantling this false sense of 
security. He's telling them, listen, you can't rely on having the law, and you can't rely on circumcisions. And it's not enough to have the law. You actually have to keep the law. So you, you can't just be a hearer of the word. You also have to be a, a doer of the word. And because Israel hasn't kept the law, really, they are on shaky ground before God. And so it doesn't matter if you're Jew, and it doesn't matter if you're in a Gentile. Nobody gets a hall pass. Nobody gets a get-out-of-jail-free card on these matters. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that, that you're sitting in one of these little house churches in someone's living room, and Paul's letter is being read before you because, I mean, that's, that's how this would have happened. Is God, Paul would have written this letter and it would have passed from house church to house church to house church. And you're a Jewish Christian and you're sitting there and Paul has been reading, been read before you. And you've gotten through the first couple of chapters. And you've got to imagine, you, I mean, you're a Jewish Christian. You have been following the Torah, the law of Moses, your entire life. So, so your entire world, your rhythms of life, they are organized around the covenant and covenant keeping. I mean, it's how you demonstrate faithfulness to God. It's how you evaluate and measure other people's faithfulness to God. You are a law keeper, as were your parents, as were your parents' parents, and those parents' parents, and all the way back 1,500 years, all the way back to the time of Moses. But now you've begun to follow Jesus, Israel's Messiah, and Paul has just told you in this letter, hey, covenant keeping is not enough. Having the law, being circumcised, those are not sufficient. In fact, you are in the same boat as the Gentile Christian who's sitting beside you. Now, this would have been mind-blowing in some ways because if you grew up as a Jew in Israel at that time, I mean, you knew that Gentiles were supposed to be treated as unclean. They weren't allowed to participate in the full religious practices of the community. I mean, if you came in contact with a Gentile, you'd have to ritually cleanse yourself. A daily prayer for Jewish men in that day was, I thank you, Lord, that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. But now, Jews and Gentiles, Paul is saying, are part of a new humanity, part of a new covenant community together. Imagine if you were sitting there. What would you be thinking? How would you have responded? Well, you would probably have some questions. You'd probably want to know, well, then what was the point of the law and the point of circumcision? Or you might have been asking, hey, well, is there any then advantage at all in being a Jew, part of God's chosen people. Well, Paul is essentially reading their mail. He's already anticipating their questions and their objections. And, and what you've probably noticed in the text today as it was being read is it is, it is actually a little bit confusing. It's kind of convoluted, um, as particularly in those first eight verses. And, and I'm going to do my best today to try and help make sense of this and to simplify it for us. But Paul is essentially addressing these concerns of the Jewish Christians. And what, what they may have you know, thought in response to what Paul had said so far. So what I want to do in our time together that's remaining is I want to look at two objections that they may have had. And then I want to land with Paul's correction to these two objections. So let's walk through the text together this morning. And let's look at what are the objections that they may have had uh, as, as they were uh, listening to Paul's letter. Well, here's the first one. The first objection was, well, maybe God is the problem. 
So they might have been thinking, hey, listen, if everything has changed, well, then maybe, maybe God made a mistake or, or maybe somehow God has, has, has kind of broken his promises to Israel. Remember, one, one of the great themes of the book of Romans is what's called the righteousness of God. And I'm going to keep bringing this up as we go through the letter together. But Paul is essentially trying to explain how the gospel doesn't deny God's righteousness. Rather, the gospel reveals God's own righteousness. So Paul is essentially, he's pulling back the curtain with the gospel and he's saying, listen, this shows just how faithful God is, that God is a faithful covenant keeper. And not only that, God is a God who, uh, he keeps his promises and he will judge all things fairly. He is the God who will come and he will make everything right. God is righteous. So, so Paul, in, in this first part, he's essentially addressing a skepticism that they would have had about God's own righteousness. And, and he tackles a couple of anticipated accusations that they would have been slinging out against God. So here's the first one. The first accusation is this, is that, you know what, God must be unfaithful because Israel is unfaithful. In other words, God's, uh, Israel's failure somehow shows that God himself has failed. Yeah, and you pick this up in verses 3 and 4. But what Paul says is, says, you know, this is actually is, is dead-end thinking. It's, it's, it's really, really bad logic. Because God faithful, God's faithfulness continues even when his people are unfaithful. So just because one person is unfaithful in the covenant, do you automatically assume that the other person is unfaithful in the covenant? Like, think about a marriage relationship, which is a covenant. Just because one spouse is unfaithful, would you automatically assume that the other spouse is unfaithful? When, Paul, when God accuses Israel... Paul is saying he does this based on the covenant he has with Israel. If he didn't do this, he actually wouldn't be a just judge who judges things fairly. And God is just, and he is a just judge. So he has to uh, judge Israel based upon the covenant. And now just to double down on this point, in verse 4, notice what Paul says. He's actually quoting from a psalm. He's quoting from Psalm 51 and verse 4. Here's what it says. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. You know, I'll be honest, and uh, when I get to quotes like these in, in the New Testament, sometimes it's easy to just kind of jump over them or to just, you know, just kind of run by them because they can sometimes feel a bit random or, or feel a, a little bit uh, obscure. I don't want to do that right now. I think it's actually moment, uh, important that we actually pause on this verse for just a second because we have to remember who actually wrote Psalm 51 because that's where Paul is quoting from. The person who wrote Psalm 51 was King David. King David was like Israel's hero. He was the warrior poet, taking down lions and bears with a sling in his bare hands. He was a man after God's own heart. The coming Messiah was promised and prophesied to come from David's bloodline. All right, this is how important David was. But what's the backstory on Psalm 51? Well, it was about David's incident with Bathsheba. I mean, King David, as amazing as he was, he had a significant moral failure. You might know the story. I mean, when his armies went off to war, David decided he was going to stay back. He was up on his roof, you know, one day, and he looked out, and he saw Bathsheba, and she was bathing on his roof. And he saw her, and he wanted her, and he took her. So he had her brought to him. He slept with her, uh, even though that she was married to Uriah the Hittite, who was one of David's loyal soldiers, okay? 
So then she came to David and she told David he was, she was pregnant. And David's like, oh man, I got to cover this up, right? I don't want my sins to be found out. So then he had Uriah over and he tried to coax Uriah to go and stay home with his wife and, and to sleep with her. And that would probably solve the problem and cover it all up. But Uriah didn't that and he failed to do that several times. So what David finally did was he had Uriah put on the front lines of the battle of his armies where the battle was the fiercest and where Uriah would assuredly be killed. And Uriah was killed on the front lines because David put him there. And so what this means was that David was not only an adulterer, but David was also a murderer. And Psalm 51 is, is David's confession. It's his plea for mercy, his plea for new beginnings, for God to set things right within him and in his world. And when David was confronted with his sin, what did he do? He didn't point his finger at God. He didn't question God's faithfulness, even though David himself was unfaithful. And instead, he pointed the finger at himself. And this is what we find in Psalm 51. Let's actually read the full verse of what David said there. He says, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God, you are righteous and I am not. And it's not your fault, it's my fault. And I've only sinned against you. Israel's faithfulness, unfaithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness, Paul is saying, it's not a blemish on God's faithfulness. And even David understood that. So that's the first accusation. Let me quickly talk about the second accusation. I don't want to spend a lot of time with it. But the second accusation is that, that God has no business judging Israel because their failure actually makes God look good. I know, right? Like, it's like saying, my untruth makes God's truth abound, or, or my blemishes makes God's glory brighter. And really, it's a silly accusation. As a matter of fact, that's what Paul says. He says, I speak in a human way. It's Paul's way of saying, I'm talking like an idiot here, okay? This is not a great argument, okay? God doesn't need us to look good. He's doing just fine on his own. If you like me saying, well, you know, I went out this week and I intentionally got COVID, but I did it because I wanted to demonstrate to the world just how healthy you all are. So I have no idea why you're all quarantining me. It's the same kind of an argument. So Paul is essentially saying, listen, listen, Israel, God is not the problem. Uh, Jewish Christians. But then they have another objection. Let's look at that. Here's the second objection. The second objection is that the law is the problem. So if God's not the problem, then maybe it's the law. This is what's implied in the, in the question right at the beginning where it says, well, what advantage has the Jew? What's the advantage of having the covenant? Why would give the, God give the law to the Jews? What's the advantage? What, what's the value in all of this? And it's interesting, Paul's, Paul's answer may have actually been surprising to them because they might have expected him to say, well, you're right, it's absolutely worthless. There's no advantage in being a Jew. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, well, much in every way. He says, because Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God. And what he's essentially saying is that they were given the honor of being God's ambassadors to the world. You know, that, that word oracles, it's actually not a Jewish word, it's a Gentile word, and it means divine message. So what he's saying is that the Jews were given the very words of God, but it also says that these words were given to them as a trust. Listen, when you are entrusted with something, it means you are holding on to something for someone else. You are not holding on to something for yourself. So the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God, but they were intended not for themselves. They were intended for the entire world. 
And Paul has already been talking about this, is that Israel was charged with this incredible responsibility to be a light to the nations. I mean, through them, all the nations would be blessed. They were to be God's ambassadors for the entire world. But, but they weren't supposed to just deliver this message. They were actually supposed to demonstrate this message, to live it out, to incarnate it, to embody it, to model it, to show the other nations of the world. This is what it's like to walk in relationship with the living God. But when Israel failed at this task, God held them accountable. So, so this, Paul's saying, you know, this doesn't mean that the law has failed or that God, that God made a mistake somehow by giving you the law. In fact, nowhere, nowhere does Paul ever speak disparagingly about the law. You will not find it in any of his letters. Later in Romans, Paul will explain how the law is in continuity with God's overall plan. So there is no disconnect. The law is actually part of a much larger picture, what we would call a meta-narrative. So, so God wasn't just like crumpling up his covenants with Israel and saying, well, you know, kind of throwing it over his shoulder into the trash. And it's not like, not like God was saying, well, that was awkward. You know, <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. You know, I, I kind of made a mistake there. Plan A is out the window. Let's, let's get plan B. Jesus kind of get in there and fix things, right? I mean, that's not what was going on here. Jesus was Israel's promised Messiah, he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And through Jesus, he has kept all of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he will go on keeping his promises until the end of the age. So Paul doesn't explain everything here, uh, but he will explain a whole lot in chapter 9. We're only in chapter 3. So when we get to chapter 9, a lot of these questions are going to be answered. But the point is this, is that the law was not the problem. In fact... The law accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. Look at what Paul says in verse 20. He says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, the law told Israel, this is how you live in a covenant relationship with God. But every time that Israel broke the law, the law exposed their failures. And because of that, they were under judgment according to the standard that was given to them, just as the Gentiles were under judgment according to the standard that was given to them, the law that was written on their hearts. And so the point that Paul's making is just simply this. Listen, the problem is not the law. But if you rely on the law for right standing with God, you are in for a rude awakening at the final judgment. He's very clear on this in verse 20. Here's what he says. He says, For by works of the law, no human being, no human being, will be justified. All right, so if God's not the problem, and if the law is not the problem, then what is the problem? Well, here's Paul's correction. People are the problem. You see, the problem, Paul says, is, is actually human nature. And he's very clear about this. It is a human problem, period. Let's, let's look at verse 9. Here's what he says. He says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all... All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The problem, Paul says, is that we are all under sin. So he's not just saying that we all sin. He's saying actually much more than that. He's saying that we are under the influence of sin. We are under the control of sin. 
So sin isn't just something we practice. Sin is actually a power that compels us. It's a force that's at work in all people. Now, Paul will unpack this in greater detail in later chapters. This is the first time that he actually begins to speak in this way. But it's enough to know that he's saying that, listen, sin is actually the root of the human condition. It's a very real problem. And Paul wants to point out, listen, it's, it's not just a Gentile problem, chapter 1. And it's not just a Jewish problem, chapter 2. No, in fact, it is a human problem, chapter 3. And to bring home this point, he, 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 he weaves together a whole bunch of quotes from the Psalms and from the prophets. Now, you'll notice that. There's a whole long line of them. And, and by weaving these together, he's basically saying this. He says, listen, I'm not the only one saying this. Look, it's, it's, actually, it's actually everywhere in your own scriptures. And so Paul is Paul's using these texts as a, as, as a kind of court arraignment hearing. You'll notice in verse 9, he uses the word charged. Well, what is that? Well, that's, that's, that's law court language. It's, it's like he's telling us, hey, listen, I want you to imagine that you are sitting in the defendant's chair in a court of law. And as you're sitting there, meanwhile, all of these charges are being laid out against us. One by one, the indictments fall from the poetry and from the prophets of Israel. And, it, and it's hard to actually hear these charges being laid and not feel the weight of them. Because here's the thing, is, is they press down on every area of our lives. They cover the totality of sin's influence and power in our lives. It, it, they talk about how it affects our understanding, our choices, the words we speak, the dislocated future that we imagine for ourselves, all of our lifestyle choices. And what's clear is that the ruin of sin runs deep in every single person. And so what Paul is saying to us is this. He's saying, don't you see? The problem isn't with God. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is actually deep inside each and every one of us. And then Paul makes this really interesting statement in verse 19. He says, So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Well, what's that all about? Right? Every mouth may be stopped? Who talks that way, right? Well, the church in Rome in that day would have had a better handle on its meaning than, than the modern hearers that we are. See, in Paul's day, legal proceedings were very, very public. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of television going on. People for, you know, something to do would often go and just saw, see courts being tried publicly. So most people were familiar with how the court system worked in that day. If you stood on trial as a defendant, you were given an opportunity to speak in your own defense. And when you were finished speaking, you would put your hand over your mouth to indicate that you were done talking. But sometimes, if you didn't stop talking, the authorities would shut your mouth for you. So if you're clearly guilty and you kept blubbering in your defense, the court officials would essentially come up and they would hit you in the mouth. And they did this to in indicate that it was time for your mouth to be stopped. And the point that Paul is making here is that the charges against humanity, they are so clear and they are so compelling that we really have no defense. They smack us in the mouth and it's time for us to stop speaking in our own defense. You know, I've only been to court once in my life for something I did. Uh, happened when I was in the 20s. I got a speeding ticket. 
you see, what, what, what happened was the backstory is I, I had a leak in my gas tank and I was rushing to my friend's house in order for him to fix the leak in my gas tank. And I was so panicked that I, I, I was a little lead foot, a little heavy on the accelerator. Um, so I got rolled and I got a traffic ticket and I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to fight this one in court. I think I can win this one because I had, after all, I had a very good reason to be speeding to my friend's house. So I, I got a letter from my friend indicating that this was all in fact true and I had my day in court and I stood before the judge with this written letter and when I stood before the judge I went on and on and on and I presented my defense and finally he stopped me and he said, son, were you speeding? And I says, your honor, yes I was. And he says, son, you driving faster would have not made the gas come out of your tank any slower. You were speeding, you're guilty, pay your fine. Ha! <laughs> What did he do? He slapped me in the mouth. There was nothing more for me to say in that moment. I was guilty and I paid the ticket. You know, when we're confronted with our failure, it is human nature, human nature for us to try and defend ourselves. I mean, even if we're clearly in the wrong, we will look for ways to defend or downplay our actions, but we just keep talking and talking. We keep going on to defense. We are coming up with self-salvation strategies to justify ourselves before God and before others. I wonder, what are the self-salvation strategies that you have tried to use in your own life? Well, let me identify some of the favorite ones that I have. I mean, one of the ways we might do this is, is we'll compare ourselves to others. You know, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least I haven't exploded any kittens. You know, it's not like I, it's almost like we have a built-in syndex that, that's cataloging our worth compared to everybody else's worth with a cross uh, index in there. Or sometimes we'll, we'll try and rationalize our guilt. So I was tired. You know, I, I had a really hard day. Or there was, there was a lot of peer pressure. Or did you see the way I was treated? Or I deserve this. And God understands. Sometimes we'll even use our good behavior to somehow outweigh the bad behavior that we've just done. You know, I gave money to charity. I care for my family. I'm a socially active kind of person. You know, even mobsters like Tony Soprano use this. He said this once, I kill lots of people, but I'm a good son. But sadly, that's not how divine justice works. The truth is, Paul would say, is that we've all violated God's holiness. And you've got to imagine that the law of God is like a sheet of glass. It doesn't matter how you break it. You could break it with a small hammer. You could break it with a hand grenade. It doesn't matter. Once you break it, it's broken and it stays broken. And the verdict is, everyone is guilty. And so Paul is saying, listen, you have to try and abandon your self-salvation strategy. It's time to shut your mouth. Well, the good news of the gospel is that God's grace was given for our guilt. In the heavenly court of appeals, the most amazing thing has happened for all of humanity. That while we stood before the judge awaiting our sentence of death, the perfect judge stepped down from the bench and he took our place. He was innocent. He was perfect. He didn't deserve to be there. And yet he sat down in the defendant's chair in our place. And while he sat there, he had all of the charges laid upon himself. Everything we've done in the past, everything we're doing right now, everything that we will ever do. 
And then he received the death penalty in our place. And he carried our sins with him to the grave. And so Paul the Apostle will write in another letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He would say, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is echoed in the words of Peter in, in his letter. He says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. People are the problem, but God himself became the solution. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and he lived among us. He lived a perfect life under the law. He fulfilled all of the law's requirements so that he could bear the sins of the world, so that he could be the righteous, perfect lamb of sacrifice on our behalf. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, he paid for the penalty of our sins. But not only that, he broke the power of sin in our lives so that we are no longer under sin, but instead that we are under Jesus Christ. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he can put us back together. He can fix us. He can renew us. He can help us live a transformed life if we will simply allow him to do this. All of this is possible. All of this is yours. All of this is mine through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot earn it. You cannot barter it for it. You cannot buy it. There's nothing you can do but receive it in faith through Jesus Christ. And I wonder this morning, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own self-salvation strategies? Or are you entrusting in God's divine strategy, which was to save the world through Jesus Christ? What are you trusting in this morning? And so Crosspoint, may this be a banner over us as we enter into this season of solemn assembly. Because of Jesus... We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Because of Jesus, we can repent with glad hearts, knowing that he welcomes the sinner. Because of Jesus, we can lift up our voices in worship and celebration to the one who loved us first and the one who loves us most. And Crosspoint, if, if Romans teaches us anything this morning, it's this. It's that the world needs Christ the world is lost and separated from God apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, they need Christ. And they are powerless to save themselves and they need the power of God to awaken them to the truth of God. What is it that catalyzes the power of God? It's when God's people pray and they call out to him. And they surrender themselves to the sin. They say, God, forgive us our sins. And God, heal our land. We need God more than ever before. And so we are calling you to join with us to pray. What part will you play in igniting a movement of the Holy Spirit within us and within our land? Well, as we close, I want to give you an opportunity to just pause before God and to just connect with Him. God has probably spoken to you this morning in some way. How has God spoken to you? And what are you going to do about that? I want to give you an opportunity this morning to respond to God. He welcomes you. He invites you. He loves you. He wants to spend a moment with you. So we're going to give you two minutes to just... Um,
to just pray, and then I'm going to close us in pray in prayer. So why don't you just take a moment and pray. Let's pray together. God, this morning we acknowledge our powerlessness to save ourselves. We acknowledge that apart from you, we are separated. We are distanced. We are dead, spiritually dead. And God, this morning we acknowledge our faith in Jesus Christ, the resurrected, risen Lord who defeated sin and death and the grave on our behalf. And we turn to him with all of our hearts this morning and we put our full trust in him not in our own strategies to save ourselves but in the, the divine strategy to save us we thank you Lord for loving us and welcoming us and we thank you for the power to change us we put our full trust in you this morning and God, as we work our way through this week of solemn assembly, we invite you by your Holy Spirit to do a deep work within each and every one of us, to do a work within our own Crosspoint community, and God, to heal our land. And so God, would you be at work within us, we pray, as we seek your face. Thank you for that joy and that privilege to know you and to seek you. We give you thanks with glad hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.